Welcome to the November 2023 LDA Podcast. I'm Matt Richter, and I'll keep this introduction short so we can dive right into the show. We have three exciting segments for you, plus our usual best and worst in L&D. Kicking things off, I'm joined by Nidhi Sachdeva. Nidhi is both an evidence-based learning designer and a researcher. She just completed her PhD in the spring, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk with her about the differences between learning and performance. Then, Guy Wallace is in the house, and Guy needs no introduction. Having been a performance analyst and instructional architect for a few decades now, we're going to talk about his latest book, The L&D Pivot Point, published by LDA Press. Finally, in our third segment, the inimitable Tiagi joins me for a new series we will intermittently run called A Person of Interest. Tiagi will share his biography with us, how he got his start, how he ended up where he is today as one of the legends in interactive learning design. So, without further ado, let's move right into my conversation with Needy. All right, I'm back and I'm here with my friend Needy Sachdeva. Needy, if you don't already know her, is a Canadian, but we won't hold that against her. <laughs> and Needy is nice. an evidence. <laughs> nice. I love Canadians. I live oh. in Albany. We're closer <laughs> to Canada than we are from New York. <laughs> anyway, Needy is an evidence-informed learning designer and researcher. She's also an ed tech specialist. But most importantly, Needy's a mom of three little ones. And I'm trying to convince her for the sake of those little ones to adopt a puppy. Because I think they need a puppy. Uh, they ask for it. Yes, they have been asking. And uh, I'm putting it off for as long as I can. Because as I was telling Matt, uh, I was telling you, I'm, I'm still changing some diapers here. So the puppy is going to have to wait. Hey, the puppy would just be one more set of four hands. Yeah. <laughs> and all the other thousand things and researching that I do. <laughs> well, welcome to the LDA podcast. Thank Andy. you. Thanks Thank for you. joining Thank us. You. It's, it's my honor. Thank you. So I know that I'm going to have a conversation soon with Guy Wallace about his book, The Pivot Point, mm-hmm. and uh, the L&D Pivot Point. And Guy talks a tremendous amount about the difference between educational learning and enterprise learning. So the notion of needing to learn to reach some kind of performance outcome. And I know this is a passion of yours as well. Mm-hmm. So so what are your, some of your thoughts about L&D in the context of performance, performance improvement, performance education, and so forth? Um, so maybe I'll start by defining the two terms, just so uh, folks have a clarity of it. Because learning and performance can have different meanings or their own sort of various ways of defining them. So let me start by defining what learning means for me. So the term learning refers to the lasting changes in behavior or knowledge that help you remember and apply what you have learned. So Kirshner, Clark, and Sweller would say, learning is the change in one's long-term memory. And I relate very strongly to that. But then Performance is very, very important. It's key. Why? Because learning tends to be invisible. It's hard to see learning. 
So performance refers to the act of showing what you've learned and what you can do in a specific area. Um, I, it is I something that, that you can... Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important distinction, Needy, because in business, I'm not... If I'm the CFO, I don't give a damn. Mm. I mean, I'm sorry, mm. I don't give a darn. Mm. <laughs> Learn something. What I care about is that your performance on the job has mm. shifted or changed to support our corporate goals. Yeah. 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 Right. And rightfully so, because that's really is an indicator of that is how you can see and measure right after you learn something or practice something because the performance sort of is that measure, right? Uh, the issue is though, the performance may or may not be a long-term indicator of your abilities because it can be easily forgotten. So think of uh, you cram something before an exam, you perform next day in an exam, but you may or may not remember it. Highly likely you won't remember in the long-term. So performance, very, very key. Um, as an indicator of learning, but how do we continue to replicate that performance? And I think that's really interesting. And I think you kind of have to go back to learning for that perspective. And there's this notion that I like to talk about is desirable difficulties. It's Robert Bjork's notion, uh, but it's a really, really interesting way to look at that because when you make learning better, you eventually make performance better. That's the idea. One of the things you're talking about, though, is the difference between short-term memory versus moving that short-term content, information, mm -hmm. rules, processes, principles into long-term memory. Mm -hmm. And then the act of taking that knowledge and applying it as a skill. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll say I'll talk about two terms here that are actually characteristics of our long-term memory, right? So our long-term memory has two kinds of strengths, if you can call it. One of them is storage strength. So it relates to the permanence and stability of memory in our long-term memory. So how well is the information encoded and stored um, as we were learning it? So what's happening during the learning process? And retrieval strength is the other characteristic. It means how easily can you bring that information back? And that is almost always demonstrated by performance. So storing is one thing, but being able to take it out is where your performance is actually uh, visible. Well, let's clarify one thing. So when we talk about memory, mm. colloquially, we uh, those of us not in the industry will tend to think of memory as simply facts. So like memorizing all of the Canadian prime ministers, right? Yeah. That would be a set of facts that we tend to think about uh, when we refer to memory, right? We mm -hmm. memorize those facts. But mm -hmm. when we're talking about learning in the context of, of uh, psychological or cognitive functions, we're talking about more than just memorizing a set of facts, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're not just, uh, you know, memorizing factual knowledge, but folks have to memorize procedural knowledge, right? So when you see a doctor, they're performing something, for example, a surgeon, their performance, they're constantly able to pull back from their memory because they have in so many ways automatized those skills, right? So it's not just factual, which may, which probably will have some value. Procedural knowledge is very, very important. And that is also stored in our long-term memory. And to be able to retrieve that fast is, is very, very important. And that is basically how well you perform in that moment. Right now in our industry, everyone and their grandmother's talking about skills, skills, this, mm. skills, that, 
It's all about skills. But I think we're oversimplifying when we talk about skills. We're not mm. differentiating all of the facets that get us to skills. I don't think it's appropriate or accurate for us to talk about learning skills. It's mm. more about applying all the information, the knowledge, those procedural bits, the rules, the principles collectively into a complex application. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that, am I capturing that properly? I think so. And I, I agree. I mean, I'm thinking in the context of sort of my world, uh, teaching skills. Um, and then if we actually don't teach the knowledge, then skills alone actually don't do anything. So you right. need to do, do that both. Exactly. So just being able to say, teaching someone communication skills, but then you're communicating about a topic, right? So you need to have the core knowledge for the topic. But of course, you do also need to have communication skills. So I think I agree with you when we just say teaching skills, it does over uh, simplify things. If we don't bring the aspect of how can you actually present that skill? Like it doesn't exist in vacuum. It doesn't exist in isolation. It exists on something else. You demonstrate a skill, be it your organizational skills or communication skills, or how, um, you know, how do you work in a team? How you collaborate? Those are all skills, right? But you can't do that in a vacuum. You're doing it on the back of something. And that, that, that something is really sitting on some kind of knowledge. I mean, I, we like to call it prior knowledge in cognitive science or background knowledge. But I think they both have to go together to be able to demonstrate a skill because I can't show you my driving skills without a car also. Well, and you, you also need to be able to make decisions, yeah. right? And so decisions, so I may be great at steering, but the complex nature of driving involves decision-making. It, it involves an analysis. It involves critical thinking around that domain. And so it becomes a much more complex endeavor to teach complex skills. And think where it's coming from. It has to come from experiences that you've collected in the past, right? Uh, your decision-making, should I go this way? Should I go that way? If I Can my car pass this way, for example, if we're taking the analogy of a car, right? And so it is coming from those schemas, so those frameworks that you have developed over time, going through those processes and learning through that process. Yeah, so absolutely. You, you need to be able to demonstrate those uh through those skills mm -hmm. and so without getting too deep into it because we'll put people to sleep the <laughs> the it's a complex notion to talk about learning mm -hmm. so when we talk about learning in the context of business so to to mm. steal from guy enterprise learning mm. that's why we attach performance to it because as you stated mm. it's measurable it's something we can mm -hmm. see it's something we can observe but mm -hmm. it sets the target, the objective in an organization. But it shouldn't take away from what we learn in college or at university. When we study philosophy, we do that for bigger purposes, more mm -hmm. life actualizing goals mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. are beyond enterprise learning. They're two different ideas. They have two yeah. different objectives. Yeah, yeah. And, and in many ways, is you can actually enhance performance even in an enterprise setup by making sure that that learning um, is happening in a way that I can show you my performance today, but then I can also show you two weeks from now, right? So, of course, it's important in college 
in university, in school learning, as you're building your facts, building your procedural knowledge, developing those schemas in your brain. But when you do get into the world of working and corporate setting and enterprise setting, I think the more knowledge you'll have, the more sort of deeper memory traces it has developed, better your performance will also be, right? So they're also still, in my opinion, um, also related. But I know that um, in the industry, we want to be able to quantify learning, right? And that does happen for from performance. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of um, adding that little challenge, because how do you also assess performance, right? You assess performance by giving someone a task to do. So let's we, in schools, we call it a test, right? Or some kind of assessment, some kind of evaluation. So you add that level of challenge, but not make it overly challenged for the person who has the task of showing the performance. And then you see that the learning naturally gets deeper and performance get enhanced. So it's kind of like that relationship works for much, much later on as well in our lives also. I so think one of, one, of the, one of the mistakes we make in assessment is we tell you you're about to be assessed. So, Needy, I'm going to give you three uh, scenarios or three simulations. And what you're looking for is X, so you know to practice your conversation skills that we just taught you. Mm -hmm. So we're literally putting up a neon sign to tell you that you need to remember something that we just went over. Well, that's easy. Now you just have to execute. Mm -hmm. But the minute we send you back into the workflow, no one's queuing it for you. So you have to recognize the situation up front that is indicative of the application. And if you aren't trained in that as well and haven't been tested on being able to make the indication, then you are going to fail. That yeah. transfer fails. Yeah. yeah. And we don't do a very good job on giving you the opportunity to see, oh, do I have an opportunity or don't I? Yeah. And then getting you to build that long-term memory to ask yourself, hey, what's the situation? What's the scenario here? Yeah. Yeah, pu pulling it out of there to be able to do that. Absolutely, I agree. I absolutely agree. Hey, you got to make this tougher. We're supposed to debate a little here. Say that again? You're not supposed to agree with everything I say. You're to... <laughs> but you're right. You're right in that context. I mean, um, that, that's, that's what I mean. This notion of add the challenge. Make it a little bit harder, but may not make it so hard. It should be within the framework of what the person's supposed to know and has been taught um, for them to be able to perform, right? If I teach you how to bake a cake and then I ask you to use the same idea to bake a cookie, I mean, that's not a, that's not a fair assessment, right? So, but what you were saying, I do agree just because you, you do, um, and, and it's that notion of contextual interference, right? Like you learn something in one context, you've been tested on it, you got it, you've created a memory trace, but then you slightly so change, add the variation, the variability. That's the beautiful thing. You add the variability, um, which is one of the desirable difficulties. You add that and you change the context a little bit. And then you see, and that slight challenge is going to create deeper memory traces, is going to feel uncomfortable. It's going to create that discomfort, 
but it is what's going to make learning deeper and it is what's going to make performance better eventually. You you see it in all sorts of courses that get built. So like um, TSA training. In the old days, they used to tell you, all right, here, here are 10 scenarios. Find the person that is the bad guy. And every one of the scenarios would have a bad guy. So it's easy, right? You just have mm -hmm. to, you know, to look for the anomaly or the cue or whatever, mm -hmm. right? But now some of the better testing is here are 10 scenarios mm -hmm. done. That's it. That's the level mm -hmm. of instruction you get. Um, now for each scenario, what do you do? Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out, is there a problem? Identify where the problem is. Yeah. then execute some kind of uh, response to the problem. Yeah. Now yeah. we have a test, but we're still not done because now we got to then transfer you back into the workflow where you have to remember to keep doing that. Keep yes. looking for the situation. Yes, yes, right? yes. And that's why we do follow-up. That's why we do the learning in the workflow piece. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and it's that... Finding that balance between challenge and attainability. Um, so, you know, it's good to add that challenge, but then also when things become too difficult, you may feel discouraged. But then when things are too easy, you may grasp the material rather superficially. So it's 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 the magic of designing instruction and evaluation. That's where the magic is. And I think um, it's not a straightforward answer. And I think it changes from um, content to content, uh, level of prior knowledge, um, scenario that you're in. It's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating world for sure. Yeah. But I know that there's another component to this that I believe you're really interested in, which is the motivational aspects of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you keep talking about it has to be challenging, but not too challenging. Mm -hmm. And that's motivational. Yes. If I yes. overstimulate the scenario, make it too difficult, you shut down. I will. So we need to consider the motivational components too. The relevant we're doing it. And I always say, like, you know, science of learning and sort of cognitive science gives us some really, really important messages but if the learner doesn't want to learn if the person doesn't want to do the task that is like to get them to come to the table to do it like that is all motivation and oh, motivation does <laughs> well that's motivation that's it's motivation very, very ineffective motivation yeah it's not gonna last too long but it is yeah of course you know I think and you, you're a better expert uh, or more of an expert in uh, self-determination theory than I am, but, but I really like that theory and I try to educate myself as much as I can. But when I was learning about it and somebody explained it in a really nice way is that, you know, understanding the sequence from a motivation to extrinsic motivation and then autonomous motivation or intrinsic motivation, as you can call it, sits on a spectrum. So you may start completely a-motivated and I may use like for my kids, candy or something to bring them on that spectrum. But then self-efficacy, success takes you to the actual real kind of motivation that you would want to do it again and again. And that I think that spectrum component makes so much sense. So starting by paying someone off is probably not a bad idea, but then you're going to have to do something else. Well, it's the art of facilitating. 
right? It's not the art of mandating or dictating, but how do I facilitate someone along that continuum so that their needs, their basic psychological needs get satisfied over time? Yeah. Uh, there, are, I don't know if you heard the siren, but the police are coming for me. So, <laughs> um, but so we have to find a way to satisfy those basic psychological needs in the context of the learning and to do that, we have to focus on people feeling effective, right? They have to see the possibility. That's why that frustration piece can't be there. We have yeah. to push, push, challenge, not too much. Yes. But we yes. concurrently need to make sure that we're reinforcing, solidifying, um, connecting relevance, yeah. value, meaning, purpose, yeah. so that people autonomously want to engage. Yeah. And I think that question of why... Why should I care about this? What's in it for right. me? That discussion is so integral to learning and performance, both um, because if it doesn't make sense to me, and if you notice, kids naturally, instinctively ask that question, but we forget that when we're adults, right? When we're designing instruction for adults. If I say something to my kids, their first question is why? Why should I do it? And it's such, and if when I explain it to them, if it makes sense to them, they'll do it, right? But we sometimes forget that when we're designing instruction for, you know, work or the industry or even adults like learners in universities. Like when you say the why, it just clicks. It just really changes that perspective. And I also wanted to go back to that idea where you just said, like, you keep challenging, challenging, but not to the point. I think I was reading a paper. It's a really cool paper. I'll send it to you um, after our chat. It's called the 85% rule for optimal learning. Have you heard of it? No, no, it's actually a study they did um, and uh, it was published in nature.com. It's really interesting paper. And it says that and, and I, they looked at it for human sort of learning and also machine learning and, you know, in gaming and sort of uh, games and all that. They really use this kind of idea, too. So when you're playing a game like Candy Crush, so if you keep succeeding 100 percent of the times, you're going to get bored. You're not going to want to play it. Right. So they designed it in a way that you succeed 85 percent of the times and 15 percent error. And that keeps you motivated. Apparently, it's the magic number. Similarly, when you're designing instruction, if you're, let's say, designing evaluation for your instruction, that performance component that we're talking about, if you get them to perform 85% of the times and leave that error space, the challenge added, and there's possibility of error of 15%, apparently that's really, really good for motivation. It's a really fascinating paper. Um, I'll send that to you as well. Yeah. I've been digging in a little bit more into it. Send it to me. And also, I want to reference then uh, Scott Rigby and Richard Ryan wrote a book, jeez, uh, 10 years ago, maybe 12, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, called Glued to Games. And it's all about how you design video games in a way that's not manipulative, yeah, but engages intrinsically. Yes. Right. Yes. And so they talk about what you just did around the need to challenge to the point where I'm not winning all the time and get bored. Right. But also where I see some kind of uh, autotelic uh, reason for me to keep playing. Right. It's just enjoy enjoyment to keep playing. Uh, right. Yeah. There's an inherent pleasure in it that yeah. creates and fosters some meaning or it's mission-based. So that value proposition is in completing some kind of mission yeah. that, that in the narrative is engaging yes. or, and they have all these different ways that they explain 
that there's autonomy support yes. as you go yes. through the creation. And then the collegiality piece, that sense of belonging, right? That you're you're playing with a group of people who are going through yeah. a similar experience. Yeah. And so forth. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's a great book that takes SDT and applies it in that gaming context. Oh, interesting. Right? Which, of course, we can apply in a learning context as well. We absolutely can. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so intertwined, right? Like, um, yeah. Yeah. And there's so much to learn from uh, theory and then bringing it into practice. But then also you have to understand how it would apply in that particular context. It's There's a lot of magic happening. In well, that's where someone I'm just going to send you that article, by the way. Oh, cool. Uh, but that's yeah. where someone with your background comes into play. Because now we can pull you into uh, how do we do that transfer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mm -hmm. would call you, to me... You know, we've talked for a long time about the uh, research to practice translators, yeah. right? So the 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 research translators, so people like Will or Ruth Clark or um, uh, Patty Shank, Julie Dirksen, right? But we're all getting old, and you are one of the top new research translators that that have joined the field. So we're thrilled to have you. Thank you. And I'm so thrilled to be around you all. And I've had a, a good fortune, actually, to connect with Clark, for you, with you, Patty, as well. And I think it's just fascinating foundation that you've all set up for us to continue doing this great work. Um, yeah, it's I find it fascinating, just really incredible each day, how you could just take this knowledge and bring into it and make learning performance better. Um, for everyone, because that's really the entire goal, right? So yeah, oh, it's 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 my my honor actually. Now, Needy, I didn't warn you in advance, so I'm dropping this on you spontaneously. <laughs> but will you come back at the end of the show to do our best and worst of the week? What we do is we ask you to tell us the best thing you've seen in the L and D industry over the last week. You personally. And the worst thing you've seen. <laughs> so we, okay. we come back and join us for that at the end. I will do that. Yes. Excellent. So needy, where can people find you? Oh, they can email me. Oh, but my LinkedIn is the best place to be uh, and find me. That's uh, where I'm the most mm -hmm. active. I would say. Tell you what, we'll we'll put that in the show notes. For Sounds everybody. good. And I will also mention that I have a. Um, newsletter slash blog called the science of learning it's a co-authored blog uh, newsletter with a associate professor from oise which is ontario institute for studies and education and what we do is we reduce the gap or we try to reduce the gap between educational research and instructional practice so we do write a lot for educators but we also do write a lot for designers learning designers instructional designers so i'll put in that link and i'll share that with you and uh, you can add that to the um, magic where you're creating all this Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Needy. And we'll we'll see you in about uh, 30, 40 minutes. Yes, I absolutely. I can't wait. Thank you. All right. I'm back and I'm back with one of my heroes. And I know I say this every time, but this is an authentic person on a pedestal for me. 
I've known our next guest for almost as long as I've known Tiagi, so about 25 years. And every year, I would see this guy at the ISPI conferences. And as one of the thought leaders in ISPI, this guy was one of the few that would actually sit down and recognize I was breathing. He would actually take time to talk to me. He would take time to explain things to me. He would take time to teach me different concepts and performance, performance improvement, and so forth. And so over the years, I've considered this guy a mentor, uh, a teacher, someone I admire and follow, and I'm just thrilled to have him on the LDA podcast. Welcome, Guy Wallace. And I know I used, I called you a guy. That wasn't an intended pun. So, sorry. But it, but it works. But it works. It, well, it thank works. you, Matt, for inviting me to be here. I'm I'm happy to be here. Well, we're, we're actually not here to just chit-chat, which I'd love to do. But we're here to talk about your latest book. Your latest book being the L&D Pivot Point Performance Improvement Consulting. To appropriately pivot from instructional development efforts to non-instructional development efforts, or to do both. So that that's a pretty long subtitle. So, but uh, uh, I'm I'm nothing if not not concise. Well, congratulations on the new book. Well, thank and, you. And uh, and shameless plug, a guy published it on LDA Press. So thank you for doing that. Happy to do so. So, Guy, what if you had to uh, summarize the book in 10 seconds or less, what would be the summary? Ooh, um, I think it's to when you get a training request, not to challenge it, but to clarify it and then plan for conducting the project th that would include conducting an analysis, an adequate analysis to inform the client's business decision-making at the L&D pivot point. So what is the pivot point then? The pivot point comes in a client review. I do this rather formally in my consulting engagements, but the pivot point is at the end of the analysis phase in what I call a project steering team gate review meeting. Borrowed a lot of terminology and thought, thinking from the quality movement back in the 70s and 80s. But the pivot point is when you inform the client as this is what the analysis data shows. Here's the ideal performance. Maybe some people are already doing it. Here's where the gaps are in current state performance of the others who aren't performing at a level of mastery. And here's some of the causes that the master performers and other subject matter experts have given to me in either a facilitated group process or in individual interviews and observations, et cetera. So what, when I finish the book, what does the book give me? What do I walk away with? Well, you walk away with an approach to conducting a performance-based analysis for instructional design or learning experience design. And that you can either adopt or adapt as necessary to your context and needs. Uh, so it gives you that. It gives, here's an approach to do that, how to gather the data that's needed to inform the client's business decision-making as to whether or not to pivot away from an instructional development effort should the root cause of their issues, their problems, their opportunities not be rooted in knowledge and skill deficits, but in other performance context variables. Uh, and so you can pivot away from the instructional development effort 
or you might be asked to do both. Now, so it all depends on, you know, who's the target audience? Are there incumbent performers? Are there also new hires? To deal with incumbent performance where there may be gaps, you may need to use, do some non-instructional interventions. You may need to change the process, the data and tools that people use, the consequence system, et cetera. It may have nothing to do with knowledge and skill deficits. But if you're, the target audience also includes new hires who have recently come on board, who are yet to come on board, maybe there is a need for them for learning and development to help them speed their way along the learning and performance curves so they can become performance competent better, faster, and cheaper. One of the things that I've loved about working with you, learning from you, is you've hammered into me that as an L&D professional, we're not here to just educate. Our goal is not learning. Our goal is performance outcomes. That the point of L&D is to reach some kind of uh, improved performance within the organization. Can you clarify what you meant by that and why yeah. you beat me senselessly for, for decades? Well, I think that m many of us in the ISPI, NSPI world from the past were not necessarily in educational L&D. We were in enterprise L&D. Those are my terms for it. And in an educational realm, you don't always know exactly what the application of the learners the students are you know back in their world uh, personally or 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 in their work world but in enterprise lnd we can most often define exactly what are the process performance requirements what tasks are performed what outputs are produced who are the stakeholders for both tasks and outputs and what are their requirements and so we need to help people master their performance requirements so that they can have great outcomes, good outcomes. You know, the downstream customer is happy and the regulators are happy and executives and the shareholders and your peers that you're working with. You know, you're not endangering any of them or, or you know, missing their requirements. Um, I feel like that one of the reasons why L&D is often not invited to the main table in the organization is because L&D has um, almost an idealistic view of itself, that we're here to learn for the sake of learning, that we're here to uh, improve the overall human, which, by the way, I have nothing against. But the, the folks running the company have different objectives, that the folks running the business need to see some kind of alignment to what the goals are for the organization. And what you're talking about is that specific alignment. Yes. I, this has been bemoaned by all of my mentors, uh, most of whom are no longer with us. So this goes back into the 60s. Yeah, you, you need to accept the fact you've become the mentor. <laughs> I know. I'm at, I'm at that age group now uh, on the cusp. Um, but yeah, so, you know, education is necessary, but it's not sufficient. So you need to take people from learning things and go that last mile, so to speak, to how to apply it in their process performance. What what used to be called process performance was in the quality movement is work streams. And nowadays it's workflows. Lots of different language for the same thing. But we need to help people improve their performance in their workflows 
And so we can't just stop with giving them information and a demonstration. We need to give them practice with feedback that's authentic enough to what they've got to do back on the job. And so it all starts with the end in mind, with the job tasks and outputs that are to be produced, and what are the requirements for those. And that's one of the reasons why you embed the um, the instructional design methodology, which you call PACT, inside the overarching performance improvement methodology, which is EPI. Yes, and that's that's what the book is trying to help us accomplish is the analysis data that shows what are the root causes for us to address in in uh, resolving problems or meeting opportunities. It's, it's not about repair work. It's about, you know, future state kinds of things too. And so we need to help our clients because they want performance. They may ask for training or instruction or learning or whatever language they're using, but really what they want is people to be performing better, faster, and cheaper. So their businesses and their functions are performing better and faster and cheaper. And so we've got to focus on, well, what does that mean? And what other variables are there? You can you can train somebody and they can be quite proficient in the learning environment and then go back out to the workplace environment and fail, not because they don't know how to do something, but there might have been barriers there. There might have been a supervisor who said, guy, I don't know that newfangled way you've been taught. Do it the old way, my way, because I know how to manage that. Or my peers might say, guy, we don't understand what you're doing. And this is a newfangled way of doing things here. And we we're, we do it this old way. This is the way we've always done it. And they may be the barriers to transfer. So all the investment to that point is for naught. You know, you'll get a negative or nil return on investment. And, and we need to understand the full context of the performance environment and what some of those barriers might be. It might be that there are not enough sharp saws to go around. And so some people have dull saws to do their work and, you know, that Im impacts their performance. And so we need to look at all those variables. I've had plenty of, of projects where I brought back that kind of data. The client looked at it and said, oh, we need to establish some critical action teams, as they were called back in the day, and have them address some of these other non-instructional, non-knowledge and skill issues and I thought, okay, then we're done with this project because the data has proven you don't need training to address this issue. And they said, but we're going to do the training anyway. And we've got a bunch of new hires we're going to be expanding. And, you know, we didn't talk about that earlier because we thought we got these problems we have to resolve. And we thought training was going to resolve them. But now you've shown us the light. Training isn't going to fix any of that. We're going to have to use other non-instructional interventions, as we in the instructional world might call those. And, and get those things fixed. But we've got this new population coming in and they need to be taught how to do their jobs because we need them to climb those learning curves and performance curves quickly. So in summary, that's the pivot point. That is. To do instruction, not to do instruction. Or do both. So the pivot point is all about that decision point in the overarching process. And you place this pivot point pretty early in the, the the method. It's right around the analysis stage. Yeah, it's at when you have the analysis data. You cannot challenge a request for training until you have some data. And to do that during the, the intake process, if you will, is premature. 
And it doesn't, it's not the earmarks of a service function, a service group like L&D is. You're there to serve the organization, not to make those kinds of decisions. So a client may request learning when you may think, well, that's really not going to solve your problems. But until you or somebody has data that can prove it one way or another, it's premature to push How do you get the data? I mean, not especially unless I'm an internal person. I get a phone call saying, come and do training for us. And if I sit there and say, yeah, I don't think you need training. I need to do some analysis. They're going to say, ah, forget it. You're too much effort. We're going to call so-and-so. Yeah, and, and and exactly. So, but but there's a time and a place to do training without all the rigmarole of the analysis and that. Some things are kind of like no-brainer kinds of things. Um, and... Uh, there's been times when I've been asked to deliver something for a different audience. And my client had seen me deliver something for the first original audience. And they wanted that same thing for a second audience. And I didn't know the performance context. So, you know, one of the sneaky tricks I learned back in the day was go in there, deliver the content, and then have the group themselves create the application exercise, the practice with feedback, do it live in the class, and then let them put themselves through it and coach each other, cajole each other, whatever is necessary to get, you know, each and every one of them on the straight and narrow path to performance competence. And so there's, you know, you have to decide when you're getting a request or even when you have the data and you're asked to continue on, when you've proven that this knowledge and skills aren't going to change anything, you decide to resist that or you decide this is not the hill to die on. I need to be seen as uh, helping my client and maybe I need to sacrifice myself on this hill, do their bidding, win them over, prove that I'm a team player out to help them, now, I will warn them the entire way that if it was me, I wouldn't do this, but I'm going to do this for you. So help me get, you know, get it done and get out of my way and let me get it done for you. And sometimes they'll ask, well, why would you say you wouldn't do this this way? And I'll tell them my reasons, but I'll insist that let's go ahead and do this. Now, they'll have to stop me now or they'll let me continue. But I can prove to them that I'm trying to help them and their business operations perform better, faster and cheaper. And when the dust settles on the effort, if it didn't make an impact, they might conclude that, but they might realize that, oh, guy is a good guy here. He's here to help us. Maybe I should listen to him the next time. When you're an external consultant, that's a little bit different than yeah. if you're an internal consultant. And so, again, it's one of those things where, you know, my my saying is adopt what you can and adapt the rest. So, you have to look at your own context, your own relationship with your clients. If you're brand new, it's different than if you've been there for a while and served these customers and these clients. And, you know, so it, it, you've got to, that, that's the tough part is figuring out, you know, where am I? What can I do now? What should I do now? The ideal thing may not be the thing to do at this moment. And, and that's one of the things that makes it tough. Well, it, it sounds like you're alluding to politics. Yes. I've had plenty of people tell me that they don't like politics. And I said, well, you don't have to like it. You just have to deal with it. So what are your strategies and tactics for dealing with a political situation? Me, I always like to form my client into a project steering team with the client, the requester, and the other stakeholders, because a group of people are less likely to do stupid things 
than one client who's got something in mind and wants to blaze a, a trail ahead and get it done. And the other people who are the stakeholders, that usually the management of the target audience, they might say, well, hold on there. What Guy said or the question that he asked, that's caused me to stop and reflect and think that maybe we shouldn't go ahead and just do that. Maybe we need to do this other thing. Maybe we need to include, in addition to micro-learning, practice with feedback because most micro-learning doesn't have that. And if all you're doing is pushing out, you know, mini content dumps over, you know, uh, huge content dumps, it's still going to have the same impact, nil to negative impact in terms of people's performance and the return on investment. In the book, you bring up a, a, a very um, rudimentary, very basic concept, and then show us how it's so not easy to execute. <laughs> um, it's the notion of ready, aim, and then fire. Yeah. And it's such a great reminder that you need to actually prepare and understand the context you're dealing with. But more and more, especially today, we're moving at such a twitch speed rate that we we don't take the time to actually ready, aim. And uh, by the way, I'm not so sure about the gun metaphor anymore. But, I know. Uh, but I mean, Bob Maker used to say, if you put a gun to their head, could they do it? Ah, if they can, then you don't have a, yeah. a knowledge and skill deficit. You have a motivation issue. Yeah, but, but you know, by the way, uh, total deviation. I got in trouble the other day for offering cash instead. Ah. <laughs> so. uh, yeah, there's, you know, so there's a time to be politically correct. But, you know, yeah. we, amongst ourselves, we should, you know. But the concept is ready. clear. With ready, aim, and fire, the concept is clear. So how do you get people in the business, and this al aligns to the politics piece we were just talking about, of investing the preparatory, investing the aiming time. So I learned something from the quality movement, and it's from the late Philip Crosby, and that's the cost of nonconformance in comparison to the cost of conformance. So this equates to return on investment. So the so the the return is the cost of nonconformance. What's the value of the problem that you're facing? Is it a worth you know a dollar fifty a month, uh, ten thousand dollars a month, a million dollars a month? You know what is that's at stake? So this all goes back to dealing with the stakes and the high stakes and mm -hmm. medium stakes and low stakes of risks and rewards, two sides of the same coin. So in a high, so if you get your client to appreciate that, oh yeah, this is worth a whole bunch, maybe we better slow down. Again, it's a business decision, it's their decision, because we can try it one time and then you know, cycle back and, and do it all over again and do it better and differently than the first time because they were in a hurry. And again, that's one of those things that, that the individual practitioner and their leadership have to decide, you know, how do we approach these kinds of things? Do we salute and march off and go doing it when we know it's not going to work? Well, sometimes, yeah, we do that. But if you're like Guy, you would be complaining and, and bitching and moaning the whole time about why this won't work, but I'm going to do it anyway. And as long as they see you actively pursuing what they've wanted you to do, they might start to listen to you. Oh, especially when it fails, they may think, well, Guy did warn us about that. So, so getting clients to think about that, again, you have to look at what is at stake. And you may or may not know. But if you know, you can ask the Socratic questions to lead them down the primrose path. Beware of hemlock. And, and, uh, and get them to conclude 
much like the spin sales model, get them to conclude what's the needs to be paid off. Is this high risk, high reward, or low risk, low reward, or what in between? And and then, then they might decide themselves, yeah, we need to be a little bit more careful about this. We can't take forever in a day. We've got to have a, an approach to this that's rather quick. And so that's one of the things that you have to have your quick, shortened approach where you're managing your own risks and the project's risks by understanding what it is that you can shortcut and what you can't. And then make a lot of noise about this. And again, if you have a reputation as doing good work and and serving the customer, um, they may listen to you. They may help you find that shorter route to their success. And if you go and get this book, folks, you will find a script, a protocol, a set of instructions for how to do exactly what Guy's been talking about. He will break it down to how you set up these steering committees. He will break down what you do within each phase of these meetings. He will break down how you determine whether to pivot to instruction, to uh, a performance improvement intervention, a non-instructional intervention, or both, and so forth. So I highly urge you to take the opportunity to get the book, but more importantly, read the book. Read the book, annotate the book, take notes. Guy, before we we wrap up, would you like to say something uh, that encapsulates uh, that key takeaway? One more time, repetition is good. What, again, is that key takeaway you want people to walk away from this interview knowing? I think it is to not challenge a request, despite what you may know or not know about the request and what a solution might be, and quickly generate the analysis data that's both valid and credible with your clients and stakeholders and help inform their business decision-making as to whether to continue or to shift, to pivot to some non-learning intervention, or to do both. Wonderful. Thank you, Guy. And of course, in our show notes is a link to where you can buy the book. Guy, will you uh, come back and join us for Best and Worst? I will. All right. Well, now I'm very happy to have Tiagi with us. I don't think we need to do much of an introduction, except that Tiagi is a person of interest. And so we're going to uh, spend the next 20 minutes or so uh, learning about Tiagi's background. Um, A lot of people have a lot of different ideas about who he is and how he got his start in the business. But now we're going to hear the voice of truth about who this guy is. So, hi, Tiagi. Hello, Matt. So, everything going well these days? Going well. Truth, by the way, is a relative term. There are alternative realities, and what I share with you may not be the true truth. But it could be a truth. Yes. Good. And it's your truth. Ah. Uh, Today. My truth today, yes. Today. <laughs> so, Tiagi, let's get rid of some of the demographic information. Uh, where were you born? Where Where do you come from? 
I come from Chennai, Madras, in Tamil Nadu, which is a state in South India. And uh, and you were you were born before World War Two. Uh, no, I was born during the first year of World War Two. Huh. I was born in 1938. World War Two was happening. I think in Poland at that time, uh, 1939. But it it was it was in the midst of starting. Okay, good. But, uh, Thank you for the correction. Now <laughs> I I'm going to pay for that clarification, aren't I? <laughs> uh, so you were born in 1938 in India in South uh, during the first year of the Second World War. <laughs> And uh, what was it like back then in India? This uh, lots of bombs uh, being rained down in Poland. It was after the Versailles Treaty was defeated. But what about in India? In India, it was the... Uh, Almost ending days of the British Raj, soldiers from India were recruited and paid a lot of money and sent to different parts of Africa and Europe and things of that nature. So nothing drastic happened in South India. Um, but given that the world was about to explode, was your childhood affected directly? Um, yes. I saw my father get on a bicycle with a megaphone telling people to stay inside because of the sirens are sounding and who knows, we may have bombs. That must have been pretty scary. No. It was pretty amusing. <laughs> Why so? When nothing happened, people were yelling to ask other people to go inside the house and lock themselves in. So, uh, uh, as you entered school, and what what was your educational background like? Uh, I mean, you ended up with incredible amount of education. So, how did that get started? Uh, I entered a school for which my father was the headmaster. So I went to the kindergarten, kindergarten section and then went to the middle school and then to the high school and then to the college and so on. And you studied science. You were a physicist uh, by training originally, right? Physics, chemistry, and mathematics. Uh, that's a pretty uh, big difference from getting into psychology and, and the science of learning and facilitation. Yep, yep that is true. So what were? Uh, how did you make the transition to that? So I taught physics to high school and... This is a frequently repeated story. I was teaching thermodynamics, heat, and 
I was teaching specifically the four-stroke engine, and I found many of my students in a class of 50 or asleep. And so I said, I got to do something. And I said, we are going to have a contest. Some of the people woke up and they said, this is what I want for you to do. You got 15 minutes to go out into the street and bring back a carburetor from a parked car. They said, some of the students asked me, what is a carburetor? I said, look at your physics textbook. It is lesson 20 and it talks about internal combustion engine. For the first time, the students opened the book and looked at the picture, turned it upside down, and they said, your time is running. Come back within the next 15 minutes. And I had 10 teams of five people. Of those teams, seven teams brought back a carburetor within 15 minutes. We took it apart and talked about uh, different strokes, fuel intake, compression, and explosion, and things of that nature. So they learned a lot. And they said, here is part two. Put the carburetor back where you took it from, and the car should start. So if the car does not start, you get zero points for this activity. And if you get caught by the police, you get zero points. So the participants were all excited. I said, I got to learn more about this kind of hands-on, edgy, active participation approaches. And that is how I got into learning theories and interactive learning, things of that nature, Matt. And also into uh, creating a criminal empire. Yes, exactly. It's kind of cool you were never arrested for uh, minimally uh, vandalism, maximally... Aiding and abetting, yep. So, but uh, did any of your students, uh, uh, what happened to some of them? Uh, about 20 years ago, I go back and uh, track down my students. Uh, and I found out uh, Dennis Hagerin, one of the students of the highest scoring uh, auto theft group, has become the auto theft emperor of Chennai. So you go and tell him what part you want for what type of car, and he will deliver it to you by the evening. So <laughs> that is what happened. He learned how to do things, and he succeeded in doing things. Ah, so none, none of your future students ever amounted to that level of greatness. Uh, yes. <laughs> But you were also a street corner magician. You you also in the hierarchy of time or the the uh, timeline. Uh, at what point okay. were you doing magic, and how did that come about? I was teaching high school physics, as I told you before, 
I did not pay me too much money, so I thought I will have a secondary job and decided to become a street corner magician, read some books on how to do magic tricks and practiced it and went with my students as shills in the audience, stood in street corners and did magic tricks and collected money, had a flower pot and people threw in some change coins and that became a secondary occupation. But I didn't make too much money. However, I learned a lot of things about how to focus the audience's attention and things of that nature, which was very helpful in my classroom. At some point, you uh, uh, moved to the U.S. And uh, did you do your doctorate in India or did you do your doctorate in the U.S.? And uh, how did that I, happen? I did my doctorate. What I did was doing homegrown instructional design as a teacher and wrote about doing programmed instruction, which got published in the Ministry of Education's journal. And then I had a call from somebody who said, there is an expert in programmed instruction who is going to be conducting a workshop in Madras, you are invited to attend it, you don't have to pay anything. So somebody from the ministry called me and uh, invited me to go to the workshop. I went to the workshop. At the end of the day, I told Dr. Elson was conducting the workshop that one of the statements he made about Waldo Sweet being the first person to do substitution programming is not correct because it was done earlier by other people. And if he reads page 64 of Tabor, Schaefer and Glaser on programmed instruction and teaching machines, you will see the original research abstract. He thought I was being a smart aleck and making up things. So a week later, I got a cable from Dr. Elson, who was the head of the psychology department at Indiana University. And the cable said, you're right, I'm wrong. Would you like to be my graduate assistant? I said, how much will it pay? He cabled back, said $80 a month. This was in 1967. $80 was 4,000% increase in my salary as a high school teacher. And so I said, fine. And I sold my wife's jewelry and made a down payment. I got a fly now, pay later ticket on Swiss Air and came to the United States and became a graduate assistant or a research assistant to Dr. Elson. 
And so you're in the U.S. You engaged with B.F. Skinner too, right? Uh, yes. Dr. Elson was the successor of B.F. Skinner. Skinner was at the Indiana University Psychology Department before he went to Harvard. So he came back to conduct a session on his view on programmed instruction. I attended the session, had a conversation with him where I explained my views on programmed instruction. So we had an interesting intellectual debate. And you won, of course. Yes, I won, of course, because programmed instruction died very soon after our debate. Uh, by the way, uh, I'm not sure a lot of folks uh, these days know what programmed instruction is. What What is programmed instruction? Uh, programmed instruction is instructional design in its early incarnation. So it is doing a systematic analysis, come up with behavioral objectives, and taking the content and chopping it into small pieces of information. People nowadays call it learning objects and you string together some information immediately followed by a task for the student to do and immediately followed by the knowledge of results, the correct answer. So you finish your doctorate mm -hmm. and uh, you stay in Indiana. You stayed in, in Bloomington with one detour into Nebraska. Yes. Uh, but you have spent most of your career uh, based in Indiana. But yeah. you did a lot of work for the government. You worked for the U.S. State Department for a while. Yes. I became a consultant in 1976 after doing a stint as a researcher at the Indiana University. So I decided to go on my own and I became a consultant and did some instructional design work for corporations, for governmental agencies, for the international projects and things of that nature, one of which was a $10 million project in 1969 to 71. And this was in Liberia, in West Africa, <coughs> where we did a programmed instruction based elementary education project. Uh, but something that happened to coincide with uh, the Civil War there. Yep. So uh, two years after my arrival, there was a military coup and Samuel K. Doe, Sergeant Doe, uh, was the leader of the coup and he shot my counterpart, the Minister of Education, and the president and other people. And that was kind of 
by end except the new government asked us to continue doing this because it brought money which they can squander. It, it was, uh, you're downplaying it a little bit. It, it, you were put under house arrest. At yes. that time, you, you wrote uh, arguably one of your most popular games, Barnga. Yep. Yes, we were under house arrest and we continued our activities with the local professionals and when there was plenty of spare time i decided to teach them how to play euchre which <laughs> is an indiana game and i found when i gave them the printed rules different people interpreted the rules in different ways and then i said ah what a nice idea it will be if I deliberately make subtle changes among the rules and give different sets of rules for different teams and have them play, not realizing the rules are different. And that was the Banga game whose instructional objective was to make people realize that it is small, subtle differences that makes cross-cultural communication difficult. Not too many people can uh, create games under uh, gunpoint uh, oh. and, and, uh, and, okay. and design at the expense of their guards. <laughs> yes, that is... Nothing focuses your attention as the possibility of being killed tomorrow. Yes, it puts a whole different uh, level of stress on the design outcomes. Exactly. exactly. So you return to the U.S. and you become a professor at IU. Uh, and you taught there for many years. Oh, uh, no, a few years. Two a few years. It just felt like many years. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then mostly from that point on, you you were designing, working with clients around the world, writing books. I think you've written about, what, 75 books? Something like that. And 16-page booklets as books. But thick, hefty books, I have probably written about 15 books on different and, aspects of interactive learning. And you uh, also, you get up every day. Do you still get up at 3 in the morning and write a game? Uh, no, 3.30. I'm getting old. <laughs> so if you were to give advice to someone just starting out, what would you uh, suggest? Uh, I have two goals that I recommend to people. Goal number one, I want my students to outperform me. So, for example, I had another participant in one of my workshops who wanted to become a full-time 
instructional designer and a consultant and he outsold me and he's got more business and made more money than I do doing instructional design consulting. And I had a friend in Germany who translated and adapted some of my games and he's got a lot of people doing it. I have a friend in China who does a lot of consulting work using game-like approaches. So most of my students have outperformed me doing what I do, but much better. So that's one of my goals. Whatever <coughs> you teach, I recommend you have this as your goal that your students should outperform. And the second part is I want my students to outgrow me, meaning they are no longer dependent. They become self-sustained, lifelong learners. They come up with their own learning approaches. So keep those two goals in mind. And whenever you design or deliver training, make sure you're creating people who can outperform you and the people who can do things on their own, go beyond what you taught them, go much beyond what you taught them. I'm back as we wrap up the show with our best and worst in L&D. Because I recorded each of the conversations with Needy, Guy, and Tiagi at different times, they're all edited together. But I think you'll get the gist. And we'll start with Needy, then Guy, and then Tiagi. Then I'll share mine. So Needy, what's your best of the, the week? The best would have to be, uh, I just saw it actually today. Um, it was a TikTok video by Daniel Willingham. Um, if folks know Daniel Willingham, great. If not, then he is a legendary and amazing um, researcher and scientist and author of many great books uh, in human learning, cognitive science, educational psychology. He posted a really cool video uh, on TikTok today, and he's been doing this TikTok thing because he wants to reach more university students. And um, and basically, he was talking about this idea that you keep reading, preparing for exam, and you don't do well. Doesn't that you know, not feel good, right? It doesn't feel good. And so he said that rereading is not going to ever get you that success. And by the way, this does have an implication in learning and development industry. So I'll talk about that in a second. He said, what, and he shows these uh, logos. He says, okay, which one is the correct Apple logo? We have repeatedly seen that, but people often make a mistake which one it is. Or he shows the Microsoft logos and you can't identify where the right colors are. Google logo too. Something we see all the time so he sort of demonstrated with this quick and this activity that repetitive sort of way of doing thing does not ensure that we're going to learn well and be able to perform well um what matters is when you pay attention and you think about the meaning so daniel willingham has this really beautiful sentence which is memory is the residue of thought so you will learn that you think about 
And hence, when you think about it, you learn better and then you will perform better in any kind of test or evaluation or performance skill performance that you need to participate in. So that video, I think it's like maybe a minute and a half, but it does the job just so beautifully. So that's one of the best things I would say I've seen um, recently or this week, I would say. Well, what about the worst? The worst has got to be something that was loaded with, I can't name any names, but it's got to be uh, this uh, set of slides that was loaded with a lot of content, a lot of extraneous uh, cognitive load and a lot of seductive details. Great visuals, but did not get the point across. So that's probably the worst this week I've seen. Uh, but, you know, there's other things that happen as well. Well, the worst, I think, is uh, this focus on artificial intelligence, uh, all sorts of means. It's a very fast-moving thing. It's the next bright and shiny object. I think there's a lot of promise to it, but I think that too many people have jumped on the bandwagon and have are trying to market their consulting services or whatever it is uh, regarding artificial intelligence. And I think we need to be a little bit more cautious. We need to do careful experimentation with it to see how it might make our own processes and our results, you know, better, faster, and cheaper. The best thing I think is um, I'm seeing a lot more discussion online uh, in in these forums that I follow on sim what I call simulations. Uh, there are many different uh, names for these kinds of things, but but simulating the authentic work of people and putting them in that in their practice and feedback sessions so that they can get better. You know, the, avoiding the one and done and doing it several times so that you get feedback and can make improvements in your next round in what I call application exercise or practice and feedback or simulations. And I like simulations because that's near transfer versus many things that seem like far transfer. I mean, such far transfer that you thought you were being trained to do somebody else's job and not yours because uh, you don't see that connection you don't see the how you, it will transfer easily into what you have to do performance wise back on the job ah uh, the best is more and more people are doing activities based training used to be a time when people based their training on the content and the hefty books and PowerPoint slides. Now I'm asking and I'm doing training based on activities. That is the good news. The best of what is happening nowadays, no longer people thrown upon activities based training. The worst news is that there are still people who think activities-based training is a distraction. That is not how you learn. You learn by getting the content and looking and processing the content. And whether you apply it or not, you are able to reproduce the content. So that is the bad news, Matt. For me, the best happened when running a live online workshop last week. We planned on a highly technical simulation using an app. The participants had been primed. We'd elevated their expectations for the experience. 
we had a short time frame to run it. Then the unexpected happened. The app didn't work. It took five minutes of trying to make it work, and I still failed. Heading back into our main Zoom room, the participants were all super. They rolled with the experience and pursued the learning objective. They were all excited to know what should have happened and how they could still derive some value from the experience. My jaded nature was completely prepared for the complaining and the eye roll, but nope, these experienced educators were only interested in learning what could be learned and didn't care at all about the technical issues. I'd forgotten how great it is to work with motivated and engaged learners. The worst came from me. I put all my eggs in a technical app to run a simulation. I prepped, I prepared, I rehearsed, I preset. And when it came time to run it, it failed. And after 25 years of facilitating and teaching, I succumbed nonetheless to the shiny, cool, new tool. I relied on it and forgot why I was there. A very good reminder that the objectives are what matters. The journey to get there needs to be effective yet flexible. But in the end, it's not the tech that's important. It's reaching the outcome. Okay, that's it for our November episode. Tune in in two weeks for Marcus Bernhardt's AI Insights, where he's joined by Adrian Thomas. A big, big, big thank you to Needy, Guy, and Tiagi. Check out the show notes to learn where you can find each of them. Take care and see you soon.